0: Sacrifice is at the heart of life changing love. In the novel, A Tale of Two Cities, there are three main characters Charles, Sidney, and Lucy. And and the two guys, Charles and Sidney, they look very much alike. And in fact, they have affections for the same girl, who happens to be Lucy. Lucy chooses and marries Charles. They have a child. In the setting of the story, it's in the French Revolution, and Charles, who is French, he's a French aristocrat, in fact, uh, is eventually arrested, imprisoned, and sentenced to die by guillotine. At the end of the novel, Sidney, who is English, visits Charles the night before he's supposed to be executed. He offers to exchange places with him. Charles refuses, but Sidney has him drugged, and smuggles him away into a waiting carriage. Then Sidney takes Charles' place. Charles and his family escape afterwards into England, and and all is well with them. And that night in the prison, a young seamstress, who's also condemned to die, comes up to Sidney. She begins to talk with him, thinking him to be Charles. And she realizes it's not him. And when she does, her eyes widen. And she asks, are you dying for him? And Sidney responds, and his wife and his child, hush, yes. The seamstress then confesses that she is terribly frightened. She's not sure she will be able to face her own imminent death. And she asks this brave stranger if, if he might hold her hand until the end. And when the time comes, they both go to death hand in hand. She finds herself, though, composed, even comforted and hopeful as long as she keeps her eyes on her brave companion. The girl in the story is indeed sinking under the weight of her trial. Her strength is giving out, but but then she's smitten by wonder as she beholds Sidney's substitutionary sacrifice. This emboldens her and enables her to face the ultimate test. It's moving, yes. But the true story of the gospel goes one better. It's not just a moving fictional story about someone else. It's a true story about us. We're actually in it. Jesus has come to us in our prison. And despite our unwillingness to be saved, has taken our place. The seamstress was moved by a sacrifice that that wasn't even for her. How much more so can we be empowered by the discovery that Jesus has given himself for us, that he's changed places with us? This glorious truth that Jesus has changed places with us is embedded within our text today And it's in this text we will see our good and mighty and innocent king be silent and bring about his own crucifixion so that he might bring about our freedom. Jesus is going to die the death he predicted he would die throughout his ministry. But it would be a death that defeats death itself. A death that he will get up from. We're going to be in Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15 this morning. And the main idea, which I've already kind of shown my hand on a little bit, is that Jesus is delivered over to death so that we can be delivered from death. More plainly, Jesus changes places with us. He suffers in the place of sinners my exhortation to you is that in response to this, we ought to roar in adoration of the life-changing love of the silent lamb. And and I hope to, to guide you into a sense of astonished gratitude this morning, that astonished gratitude that's at the very heart of the Christian experience. And I hope that as we consider this text together, that you with me will be overwhelmed at God's extravagant grace. We're going to go through it in in two parts this morning. We're going to look at Jesus as he's delivered over to Pilate in the first five verses, and then the rest of it will be concerning ourselves with Jesus being delivered over to crucifixion. So Jesus delivered to Pilate, and Jesus delivered to be crucified. Let's pray together. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us clarity in these things, Mm. that you would uh, correct our hearts where they're wrong that we might uh, get more in step with your Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you that this is a true story, that the gospel calls us to hope and not hype, that indeed you call us to believe, not to make believe. And so, Father, we pray this morning that you would make our passion for you hot as we consider a story that explicitly Displays the deep and glorious truth of the gospel, that you have changed places with us, died for us, so that we might live. You are good, and we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Let's put all of this into context as we get ready to approach the 15th chapter. Jesus has endured a treacherous betrayal. He's been bound in an illegal arrest, spent the night weathering illegal judicial proceedings before the Sanhedrin, and now as the sun rises, he prepares to face trial again, this time before Rome. The Sanhedrin's fraudulent kangaroo court determined that Jesus was guilty of blasphemy, and indeed he he would have been if he were not the Son of God, but it is a crime that according to Jewish law required the death penalty, And and since the religious leaders have no right to exercise capital punishment under the power and authority of Rome, they needed the Romans to execute Jesus. And so they bring Jesus before Pontius Pilate, who is a Roman governor, with the hopes of having Jesus killed. And the charges that they will bring against Jesus, we know from Luke's account, are like this. This is how they presented him to Pilate. He's been misleading our nation, that is, inciting our people to revolt, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, which if you remember, that's an outright lie. We talked about how Jesus said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And further, they added that he was saying he himself is Christ, a king. We might ask, why these charges? The religious leaders have convicted Jesus of blasphemy, right? But Rome, they wouldn't care about blasphemy. They wouldn't find that as an offense that would merit the death penalty. And so they're trying to convince Pilate that Jesus is a political revolutionary that poses a threat to Rome. They want to convince Pilate that he's a king, a rebel. And so as Jesus takes one step closer to the cross as he moves deeper into this hour for which he was born, we find that everything is unfolding just as he said it would. Remember in Mark chapter 10, verse 32, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And all those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death, check, and deliver him over to the Gentiles, that is, Rome, Pilate, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and after three days he will rise. Everything is unfolding just as he said it would. And so we come to verse 1. Of chapter fifteen, as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, "Are you the King of the Jews?" And he answered him, "You have said so." Pilate here cuts to the chase, right? He's not concerned about these other tertiary charges. He wants to know, Jesus, are you? a king, and the interesting thing here, the remarkable thing, we talked about it a little bit in Sunday school. I, I again showed my hand like a movie trailer that then spoils the actual movie for you. Uh, so remember guys, if you're bored, re- read in numbers. Uh, the, what Mark has done here is he's actually taken a Christological confession and he, he's put it in Pilate's mouth. If you were here last week, you remember that the question posed to Jesus, are you the Messiah, was a confessional question in the mouth of the high priest, so that the high priest said something akin to, you were the Messiah, question mark. What's happened here is the same formulation has taken place. It doesn't come across as clearly in English, but uh, it comes across brightly in the Greek. And and so it's really interesting to see how Mark has taken these two characters that don't recognize who Jesus is, they don't believe who Jesus is, but they're confessing him in the way that they formulate their questions. And it's just really interesting, I think. It's as if Pilate 2 says, You are the king of the Jews, question mark. And I think what Mark is doing is he's using both trials and both confessions to help us have a full orbed picture of who Jesus is. He wants us to understand Jesus' identity as the divine Messiah, as the Son of God, as the King that will one day judge those who are currently judging him. He wants us to see Jesus as the suffering servant who dies in the place of his people he wants us to understand that Jesus is the Godman, that he's fully God and fully man, right? And we said last week that this teaching is foundational to biblical Christianity. It's called the hypostatic union. Uh, I'm not going to belabor the point here because we talked about it at length last week. Uh, so if you want to learn more, you can go back and review and listen to last week's sermon because an encore rap performance isn't forthcoming at this time. I know that you guys want that, but uh, I can't do it once more. Uh, Maybe in a few weeks I'll get my courage back up. Uh, Anyhow, Pilate confesses to Jesus, you are the king of the Jews. And Jesus brilliantly answers him with some tact and says, you have said so. James Edwards comments, it's not a direct affirmation or else Pilate would have immediate grounds for execution. But neither is it a denial. The reply is suggestive, as if to say, you would do well to consider the question. I think that that Jesus' intention here is really something like, yes, I am a king, but not the kind of king you are thinking of. I'm the kind of king that comes to be conquered for his people. Not the kind of king the Jews expect. Not the one that will conquer Rome. See, he knows that Pilate doesn't understand. His his kingdom is not of this world. You have said so, Jesus answers. And it's at this point we read verse 3. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him the question, I'm sorry, Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. The the interrogation of Jesus continues here, but Jesus has done answering questions, and that's to Pilate's amazement. Pilate's amazement is the result of the fact that Jesus could exonerate himself simply by speaking up. But further, because he knows that Jesus is innocent. Pilate Pilate wasn't born yesterday, right? His political acumen enables him to discern that Jesus has been brought before him, not because of criminal activity, but because of envy. Drop down to verse 10 real quick, and we're going to come back up. This is where I get that from. He says, for he, referring to Pilate, perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him, that's Jesus, up. So it's out of envy that Jesus is before him. Pilate recognizes this. That's why he's, he's blown away that Jesus doesn't speak in his own defense. Envy is an interesting feeling, though, isn't it? Sure, Sure, none of us have ever experienced it, though, so I'll, I'll explain it to you what it might be like. Envy is the feeling of wanting to have what someone else has and then resenting them because they have what you want. Mark reveals to us that this is the, the primary motivation behind the chief priest killing Jesus. They desire to have what Jesus has, and they resent him. Envy is its ugly, and I think that it's birthed from a sense of uh, discontentment, which ultimately is the result of the idolatry that is indigenous to all of our hearts. Let me explain what I mean. We resent someone for having something we don't when we do that what we're saying to ourselves is I deserve that something and if I had it I would be happy and certainly that person doesn't deserve it I think when we envy where we're saying two things primarily the two most important things we're saying is God is not satisfying me he's somehow misappropriated resources so I don't trust him he doesn't satisfy me and we're saying something else will satisfy me So in the case of the religious leaders, they're not satisfied with God, and they believe that they would be happy or more satisfied if they had what Jesus does, which I think in this case is the crowds loved Jesus. He was greatly popular. And so I think they just would like to enjoy the same approval or appreciation. the, The text doesn't tell us what it is exactly they're envious of, but that would be my bet. At any rate, they are envious of Jesus, and it leads them to the insanity of killing Jesus. Which brings me to a question. What, what are we envious of? Who are, are you envious of? Has envy ever driven you to do something insane? Sinful? Have you ever been envious of a brother or sister in Christ? and Decided not to associate with them? Gloria Furman writes of envy. Envy shows up when we seek what is worldly so we're envious when others have what we want but if we seek if what we seek is spiritual then we glorify god when others have what we also desire envy doesn't become those who've been given everything in christ to enjoy we don't boast in who we are or what we can do or buy or wear or eat or whatever we don't boast in any of these things because we don't need to so let no one boast in men for all things are yours paul writes Jesus is both able and right to secure all things for us because he is the lamb who was slain. The father has given all things into the son's hand and everything exists for God and all things are his servants. All of these things are his servants, the world and everything in it. Your inevitable physical death, your present circumstances, good or bad, your future, uncertain as it may seem, are all in the hands of an almighty God And by virtue of being in his hands, they serve as your midwives. They're by your side, helping to bring forth life and renewal of the spirit in this age before Christ returns. We need to be reminded that no competitors stand in the way of the gospel good that God has for us in Christ. No circumstance or person can rob us of the spiritual blessings that God has promised us. Envy has no place. But sin steers our minds into irrational thought patterns, and the world confirms it. We believe that we ought to cut off our nose to spite our face. And indeed, this is what we are doing when we envy or diminish a brother or sister in Christ who is our joint member in Christ's body. God's gift to others, God's gifts to others are his gifts to us. Why wouldn't we long for our brothers and sisters to flourish more and more? After all, no one ever hated his own body, but nourishes it and cherishes it. Jesus is God's gift to his people. He was the king the religious leaders had waited for, but they resented him, ignored his identity, and delivered him over to Pilate to be killed. I mean, because of their envy, Israel's religious leaders happily betray Israel's king into the hands of Israel's oppressor. This is, this is a cruel irony. Indeed, we said Pilate sees the truth of the situation and is amazed that Jesus does not speak up to exonerate himself. And Jesus' silence, again, is important to take note of because it signals to us that he is indeed the suffering servant of Isaiah and it certifies his innocence, shows to certify his innocence. Jesus, he could get the charges dropped, he could save his life, but he calmly remains silent. This is the hour for which he came. His silence is not a silence of defeat, but a silence of surrender to God's sovereignty in his suffering. Jesus doesn't justify himself here so that he can justify us later. He allows himself to be delivered over to death so that we can be delivered from death. Jesus has his mind here set on fulfilling the will of God. He will go to the cross he will become the suffering servant of whom it is written. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus, the uniquely innocent one, goes to suffer and die on the cross because of our guilt. He is innocent. We are not. We are guilty before the God of the universe. None of us has worshipped him completely. None of us have walked in step with his holy commands and statutes. All of us are guilty of listening to our feelings and our hearts rather than the word of God. All of us have sin. And all of us will stand trial before Christ every man and woman will stand before his judgment seat. Before the one who came the first time to bear our judgment, that through faith in him we might have life. But the second time will come to bear judgment. And he will wield the sword. At that point, it will be too late to respond to his call of mercy. It be too late to respond to his offer of peace. And so I urge you, Listen to the voice of the one who was silent. He speaks to you now, beckoning you to come and follow him. Find rest in the silent Savior. Jesus remains silent in defense of himself so that he can speak on our behalf. He who created the very boundaries of the universe will allow himself to be bound so that we can go free. Let's look at verse 6. Now at the feast, he, that's Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And these verses were introduced to a man and a custom. The the man we are introduced to, his name is Barabbas, and what we need to know about him right now is that he is a bona fide criminal. Talk more about him in a little bit. Uh, the custom, though, that's described, it has to do with pardoning the guilty. And it seems as if at the Passover, Pilate was in the habit of releasing a prisoner in order to gain support and goodwill from the, the Jewish people. They didn't really like Pilate. He oppressed them, did a lot of bad things. And so this was a way of him currying favor. And another way to think of this, uh, the best illustration I found was that you can think of this a little bit like a presidential pardon is is what's going on. That Pilate, he possesses an authority to uh, expunge the record of any criminal that he so chooses. And so that's what's going on here. He's getting ready to grant kind of a presidential pardon to a criminal of the Jewish people's choosing. And so Pilate actually makes a suggestion whom he might deliver unto them. Verse 9, and he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived it was out of envy the chief priest had delivered up Jesus. Right? He knows Jesus is innocent. Verse 11. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Envy leads to insanity. Chief priests are supposed to be the holiest of the holy. They're supposed to be in intimate relationship with God, yet they call for the release of Barabbas and shout for the state-sanctioned murder of Jesus. We've made this application before, but it's it's an important one. Be careful who you follow. Not every so-called Christian minister is, in fact, a Christian. Not every Christian leader teaches the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Just because someone is a religious leader, it doesn't mean that they are a friend to Jesus. And so we need to be careful who we learn from, who we trust, and who we follow. The corruption of religious leaders, it's not a a thing of the past. There are still many who tout themselves as Christian ministers, but think very little of Christ. Just because someone achieves some impressive academic triumph and attaches letters to the end of their name, it doesn't mean that they're trustworthy or a true disciple of Christ. Heed who you follow. The Chief priests and the crowd, they turn away Pilate's suggestion of releasing Jesus, though, and they clamor instead for the release of Barabbas, verse 12. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. The man the crowd frees is described as an insurrectionist and a murderer. I mean, this is a rebel that's trying to lead a revolution against Rome. And in the process, he's killing Romans. I mean, he is a notable prisoner. Barabbas is a man worthy of death. Contrast him with Jesus, who is no rebel, no insurrectionist, no revolutionary. He, he's not killing anybody. And in fact, he has this nasty habit of raising people from the dead. So, how is it that the crowd is swayed to ask for Barabbas? I'd like to suggest that the religious leader propped Barabbas up as a truer Messiah than Jesus, right? This man is more Messiah than Jesus. At least he's taken up the sword against our enemy. He's proven he's worth his salt. What has Jesus done? Nothing. Remember, they're waiting for a Messiah that will conquer, not one that will be conquered. Barabbas is actually fighting against the enemy. Jesus is doing nothing. He won't even speak in his own defense. How can he defend you? He is no king. He is no true Messiah. He's a blasphemer. He hasn't made good on his word. Give us Barabbas. Crucify the wannabe king. It is interesting too to note the meaning of Barabbas' name. It means son of the father. So when Pilate says in Matthew's account, which is parallel to this one, whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? It's really an interesting question. So do you want this man, the human son of the father, or this man, the divine son of the father? Do you want the divine Son of the Father the human Son of the Father? And the crowd responds. We reject the holy Son of the Father. We'll take the criminal Son of the Father. Kill the Prince of Life. Give us a murderer. Kill the most magnificent person who ever lived and give us a plundering terrorist. Crucify Him, they call out. And crucify Him is the chant in every lifeless heart. Crucify him is the rally cry of our rebellion against our creator. As the people cry out against Jesus, Pilate tries to, tries to be neutral and kind of free himself from the guilt of killing an innocent man by washing his hands, Matthew again writes. When Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood to it yourselves and all the people answered his blood be on us and on our children his blood be on us and on our children this is an idiom that's used to say let us be held responsible for jesus death and we together with them are responsible for jesus death he died for our sins And apart from Jesus, we shared this cry. Let us kill him. Apart from Jesus, we are dead in our sins. We are enemies with God. And yet when we are God's enemies, when we act as his enemies, Jesus acts to save us still. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Though in our sins we join the crowd's shouts of crucify him, His blood be on us and our children. Jesus refuses to treat us according to our guilt and instead pursues us with His life-changing love. So that even the phrase, His blood be on us and our children, becomes no longer a cry of guilt, but a cry of redemption. Oh, that His blood would be on us and our children. For it's by His blood that we are made pure. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, that His blood would be on us and our children. That we would know the One who died in our place. Even though we were shouting to Him, Crucify Him. Even though we wished for His death. He responded, forgive them. Jesus gives himself into the hands of sinful men to be killed for the sins of those sinful men and to rise as the first fruits of the new creation so that those who trust in him by faith too might share in his death and in his resurrection so that those who trust in him might be made new. I want to point out, Mark wants us to understand Jesus' crucifixion in terms of a stark personal exchange. He he wants us to understand that Jesus is our substitute. As much as he was Barabbas' substitute, he was our substitute. See, all of us are like Barabbas. We are sons and daughters of the Father that have rebelled against him by choosing to follow our hearts rather than his word. We are rebels against the God of the universe. We are murderers of the Son of God. Yet we go free because our sin has been dealt with in Christ on the cross. Our sin doesn't go unpunished. God just doesn't flippantly sweep it under the rug. No, Jesus takes the punishment for us. He takes the punishment for you on the cross. He changes places with you. Robert Smith says, I love this quote by the way, uh, it wasn't two but three thieves who died on Calvary. The one in the middle took something that didn't belong to him. Your sin. Took your sin. I mean this is the great exchange between Jesus and his followers. He takes their sin. He takes our sin. We take his righteousness. The sinless one dies in the place of the guilty. And in fulfillment of the prophecy, back to Isaiah. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Peter says it this way. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body, on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Peter comments on this again in chapter three. Christ also suffered once for sins. It is the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Think about that. Dr. Aiken summarizes this section. The true Son of the Father, sinless and innocent, is beaten and crucified. The other Son of the Father, sinful and guilty, is set free because Jesus became his substitute the sovereign providence and plan of God could not be more clearly on display. Jesus is allowing himself to be delivered over to death so that we can be delivered from death. This ought cause us to rejoice with astonished gratitude. It ought cause us to roar in adoration of the life-changing love of the silent lamb. cause us to love Jesus. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Pilate had attempted to be neutral in the process, but he is not. In fact, his crime is maybe more repulsive than that of the chief priests and the scribes. I mean, at least they believed that Jesus was guilty of blasphemy before they sent him to death. Pilate knows Jesus is innocent when he sentences him to death. It's disgusting. It's horrifying. Even so, he attempts to wash his hands. But he remains guilty because he chooses approval over truth. Do you? Are you more concerned with the applause of culture and acceptance from others than you are with truth? Does the truth matter to you? Pilate chooses to reject Jesus by satisfying the wishes of the crowd and sentencing him to death. And what I want to try to point out here, maybe I'm not doing a great job of it, what I'm trying to get us to here is there's no neutral when it comes to Jesus. And the question that Pilate asked the crowd, it confronted him and it confronts all of us. I'm going to phrase it the way that Matthew does. What shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? That's the question. What will you do with Jesus? Because if you haven't trusted in Him, if you are not following Him, your cry is still, crucify Him, rather than crown Him, because He is the Lord of all. My prayer is that you will believe in and follow Him because you care about Truth. The whole Bible is written so that we might know the truth about who Jesus is. That we might know him and believe him. I mean, the Bible, it's a story that's entirely about Jesus, right? In the Old Testament, he is predicted. In the Gospels, he is revealed. In the Acts, he is proclaimed. And in the epistles, he is explained. All of it is about Jesus. It's to the aim of helping us get to know God. It's written to the end of helping us know the truth about our good and mighty King. Helping us know that our God is the one who took on flesh. That Jesus indeed lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, and rose victorious over death, proving His person and His power, so that we might unite ourselves to Him by faith and enjoy eternal peace together with Him and His people. I mean, the truth that God has rescued us from eternal punishment, the punishment that we had earned and adopted us into his family, made us co heirs with Christ, given us all things in Jesus, should lead us to exuberant worship. It should cause us to want to exalt him. It should cause us to roar in astonished gratitude. Hallelujah! What a Savior! God, cause us to roar in adoration at how marvelously wise our God is. That He would leverage man's evil to bring about good. I mean, how wonderful is our God that He would use even the envious and evil high priest to offer a lamb that would finally and completely satisfy His just wrath. They made offerings for years and years and they had to return. This is the final offering of the high priest. He offers the Lamb that can truly and finally atone for sins when Jesus is sent to the cross. Oh, church, that we would behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and rejoice! That we might roar in adoration of Him and in anticipation of His return. He came as the Lamb the first time, but He will return as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the Lord of all. And my prayer is that we would all have turned from shouting, crucify Him, to shouting, crown Him, that we would all delight that His blood is indeed on us and on our children and has saved us from our sins and reconciled us to the God of the universe. He is good. He is worthy of worship. He's worthy of your whole life. He's worthy of your affections. And Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. He's worthy of us. What will you do with Jesus of Nazareth? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness and your grace. We thank you that this glorious truth, the message of the gospel, it never grows stale. That it is indeed shallow enough for a child to play in and deep enough to drown an elephant. That the more we meditate on these truths, that you died in our place, that you changed places with us, the hotter our passion for you becomes the more dumbfounded we are by your greatness, the more we delight in the mystery of your person. God, help us to delight in you this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.